John chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How many of you have ever had to write a resume? Write a resume for a a job application? Well, resumes are pretty simple affairs, and generally the shorter the better, but they they have, in general, three sections. They can be expanded or contracted, but the first section tells who you are, and you give basic information about who you are. And then the biggest section is the section which has the what. 
what you've done academically or uh, in your occupation and what you think that you're able to do uh, for the, the employer that you want to employ you. And then the final section is very important because in the final section you have references. Because you can think all of this great stuff about yourself, but they want to know if anyone else thinks the same thing about you. And so they ask for references, and in those references they can call them and write them, and they can vouch for you if they agree that you are as great as your, your resume uh, seems to indicate. And that's important. It's important to have those references. When we make claims, we need to have some, some testimony, some people who will vouch for us, some references to back that up. And the, the bigger the claim, the more outstanding the claim, the, the more reliable the, the, the references need to be. Now, what we will find in this text is that Jesus makes some astounding claims about himself. First, he states who he is. He already started that last week. He states who he is in reference to the Father. And then he makes astounding, amazing claims about himself. But then he says, I have references. And they're called in the Gospel of John, they're called witnesses. And a witness does what? A witness testifies to what he or she Knows. Now, so let's, uh, let's pick up here, because last week we saw that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, and they were accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus answered in verse 17, which was the conclusion of last week, and it gets us into, into the answer this week. But Jesus answered them, verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So He claimed that He had a unique father-son relationship to God. And we saw last week that that was not how Jews typically spoke. They talked um, perhaps about the father of the Jewish nation, but not about my father in an individual and personal way. And then it says that the Jews were trying to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, verse 18, making himself equal with God. And the, the discourse that we have in, in today's section from 19 to 47 is Jesus speaking, and all of this is in answer to the accusation from the Jews that he was making himself to be equal to God. He defended his work on the Sabbath by referring to his relationship, his unique relationship to the Father. And the idea was that if the Father, if God can work at all times, which he does, he doesn't work Creating, He finished that at, at the creation of six days, but he continues sustaining the universe. And so Jesus says, my father is active, and so I have, because I am his son, I have authority to be active as well. If the father is active, I'm active. But what we find is an expansion of that argument in this section. Not only, not only this working on the Sabbath, not only can he do that, but whatever, whatever the father does... The Son does as well. That's the basic structure of this entire section, which is dense and a little bit complicated at points, but that's the basic idea. If Jesus has this this relationship with the Father, this unique relationship with the Father, then He has the prerogatives and the authority to do what the Father does. Now, um, this is more than just a question of like Father, like Son. 
It's not just that Jesus imitates the Father, but that He actually shares in the authority of the Father because of the relationship that they bear to each other. And not only is there a unity of purpose, look at verse 19. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing. Not only this question of healing on the Sabbath, the Son can do nothing. To say that positively, everything that the Son does is in league with what the Father is doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now, uh, this is, a, this is a, a unity of purpose between what the Father and the Son do, but it is also a unity of love. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The Father loves the Son. Now, by the way, um, this is th- this answers a mystery of the universe. This statement: the Father loves the Son. I don't know whether you've ever asked the question: from where does love come? From where does love come? And most people would admit that love exists in the world. A lot of other terrible things exist in the world, but most people would recognize that love exists in the world. And if we ask ourselves, why is that the case? Why is that the case? Why does this concept of love exist? Well, the answer that the Bible gives is this. God is love. God is love. But that answer requires what we have here. That answer requires that God, who is one, also have a plurality about Him. Because when there is love that exists, there is the lover and there is the beloved. And so here we have an answer to, to a great mystery. That is, from where does love come? Well, it comes from God, but how can God be love? And the answer is that God can be loved because eternally the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, and so on. Because God is one, and God is plural, God did not begin to love when He created the universe. God is love eternally, and the doctrine of the Trinity answers that enigma and tells us from where love comes and how love can be possible. God is love, not just from the beginning of a creation. God is love eternally. The Father loves the Son. And He says that He shows Him everything that He's doing. And in verse 20, he says, And greater works than these, than which? Than what he's done so far. He's healed uh, a couple times last week. He has turned water into wine. Uh, He's cleansed the temple. Greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. And then he tells us what these greater works are. And the greater works in the rest of this section are two in particular. And those are giving life and judging Giving life and judging. So we keep reading. And you see how the argument goes. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Do you see how the argument works? This is what the Father does because of the unique relationship. The Son does this as well. And uh, then verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And here not only does He do what the Father does, the Father has delegated to Him this task. Now, among the Jews, among the Jews, there was a universal belief 
in the fact that the only one who could give life was God. So they understood. The only one who can make life, the only one who can give life, is God Himself. That is a strictly, exclusively divine prerogative. No one else can do that. Among many of the Jews, not all believe this, but among many of the Jews, they believe that God would raise the dead at the end of the world and judge all of humanity. And they understood that giving life, and if that included raising the dead, that was included in that that giving of life, God was the only one who could do it. And the only one who had standing to judge the world and to judge all humans is God. These are things that God and only God can do. So now we have Jesus coming along and saying, not only does God, my Father, do that, I do that as well. I give life. I judge the world. And that's, that's the rest of this section, basically. He talks about those two ideas. If you look at um, verse 25... Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, here's the same argument, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So the Father lives, the Son lives. The Father gives life, the Son gives life. And then verse 20, 27 And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Verse 28. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What's he saying here? He's saying that these things that God does, I do. And this giving life has two two foci, two stages, if you will. Jesus said that he could give life now, now he could give life, and that at the last day, in the final day, that he would also raise everyone to life. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has eternal life. He does not say, will have eternal life. He says, presently, the one who hears my words and believes the one who sent me already has eternal life. And because of that, when the time of judgment comes, he will not fall under that judgment. He does not come into judgment. That is, he does not come into condemnation, but has passed already, has passed already from death to life. And then he says, as I already read, in the future, that he also will raise all and judge all. Now the, the the result of all this, the result of all this, if you look at verse 23, the result of all this is this, that, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So uh, this uh, is, is one of these astounding claims And Jesus says that there is no way to honor God if you do not honor Him equally. 
It is no honor to God to honor the Father without recognizing the Son. And so, uh, you cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. You cannot have God without Jesus. You cannot truly worship God. You cannot honor God without recognizing Jesus. Now, this kind of a claim, this kind of a claim is one of the, the things that is most difficult for people to accept. This exclusive claim that, that Christianity makes about Jesus being the only way to God, the necessity of honoring Jesus in order to have God, to honor God. But uh, whether or not you believe this, whether or not you accept this, I'd like you to see, I want you to believe it, of course, but I, but I want you to see the necessity of this. This is not arrogance on the part of Christians. This is not a, 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 an idea of the superiority of our faith. This is, this is built in to this, this whole idea of Jesus being the Son, the unique Son of God. If He is the unique Son of God, then of course, He can do what God does. And if He is the unique Son of God, then it is, as a matter of course, impossible to honor God without honoring Him. So this is built into the system. You cannot take this exclusive focus on Jesus away and still have anything resembling Christianity. So this is not a boast on anyone's part. This is simply recognizing the astounding nature of this claim that Jesus is making here. Now, before we get to the the references... I want you to see something that you might feel like is in a bit of a bit of tension about two verses here that Jesus uh, Jesus said. Verse 24. Truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. And then read verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, if you put those, those verses next to each other, when they're almost next to each other, you might, you might feel like there's some tension here. Because in verse 24, he says that if you believe, you have life, and you have already passed out of judgment, and you've already entered into life, And then in verse 28, he says that everyone will be judged on the basis of what they have done in this life. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In verse 24, it says, how do we have life? What does it say we need to do? What's that? Believe. Believe. Hear and believe. But then in the judgment, it says that we will all be judged according to our works. Now, this is actually the consistent teaching of the New Testament. That salvation is by faith in Jesus, by faith alone in Jesus. It is not by works. That is the consistent teaching of Scripture. It is by faith in Jesus. That's how we have life. That's how we can escape the condemnation of the coming judgment. And the consistent teaching of the Scripture is that in the judgment, we will be judged according to what we have done in this life. 
Now, how can salvation be by faith and judgment be according to works? Well, the answer is actually actually pretty simple. And that is what we saw in the whole letter of James that we studied earlier in this year. How can you demonstrate that you have faith? What is the only way you can demonstrate that you have faith? It's by the way you live your life. And James says that. He says, uh, you have faith, I have works. He says, show me that faith that you say that you have. Show me your faith without works, which is an impossibility. And then he says, and I will show you my faith by what I do. So it's not a changing of the standard. It is a revelation in the last day of those who have true faith. And how do we know? It's how we live our lives. Salvation is by faith and faith alone. And the judgment will be according to works which reveal whether one has faith or not. Now, we get to the witnesses, beginning in verse uh, verse 31. Um, once again, verse 30, the same argument, as I hear, I judge, my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, that unity of will and purpose. But Jesus recognizes something here. And it's something that uh, we would recognize immediately as well. And that is, if somebody makes this sort of uh, astounding claim, and that person is the only one who has that opinion about himself, then we can safely dismiss that opinion as some ravings of of some deluded person. And he says that in verse 31. He says, says, um, if I alone, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If these claims, if I'm the only one making these claims, then by definition, these are not true. And he goes on and says, but they are true because I have five witnesses, five witnesses, five references that back me up. And they are these. The first one is mentioned in verse 32, but he remains anonymous in that verse, but we know who he is. He says, there is another who bears witness about me. By the way, these five are somewhat overlapping. Uh, There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he, he bears about me is true. That another, as we will find out, is, is the Father. And we will see how the Father bears witness to him. So that's the first one, the Father, but we'll see in later verses how he bears witness. And then in verse 32, he says, there's a witness that you've already heard. He says, there's another, I'm sorry, in verse 33, you sent to John. So the first witness is the Father. We'll hear more about him later. The second witness is John. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, he is both affirming and in some way downplaying the witness of John. Why? Because John was what? He was a human. And he says, I don't, that, that's not the kind of testimony that I have. I have a greater testimony than that. But, but, I refer you to John for this reason. You thought John was an awesome preacher. And you listened to John. And you applauded John. And you went out to hear John. And 
you didn't believe what he said. So you affirmed him as a legitimate witness. You rejoiced in him, but you didn't believe him. And then he goes on to appeal to greater witnesses. Verse 36. Verse 36 says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And if you, if you want to circle or underline that verse, that is really sums up the whole argument here. He's saying this, Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. And if you recognize that what I'm doing are divine acts, then you need to recognize that the Father sent me. Now, what's He done so far? He is healed. And, and they tried to ignore that because they were focused on the Sabbath keeping. But He is healed. He has transferred water into wine. And we will see Him do amazing things, eventually raising the dead. And He says, this is what you should look at. What are the works that I'm doing? If I'm doing divine works, what is the inevitable the inescapable conclusion about who I am and my relationship to the Father. The works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me. And then we have the words. So we have the works of the Father, and we have the words of the Father. Look at verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. You have not his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So to what's he referring here? He's referring to what we call the Old Testament. He's saying these are the words of the Father, and you all search these, because you're looking for eternal life in these, and you do well to do that, but you don't believe them, because you don't recognize that all of them are pointing to me. Jesus says, all of the Old Testament is about Him. All of it's about Him. And so that's another witness, the words of the Father. And then the final witness, and this is overlapping with that one, is Moses. If you look at verses 45 and following... He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So once again, he says that Moses, Moses, uh, the first five books of the Bible, what are they about? Jesus says, they are about him. So we have the Father we have John, we have the, wor- the works of the Father, the words of the Father, and uh, particularly we have Moses. And those were all witnesses to Jesus. Now, these were very impressive references. These were uh, impeccable references, impeccable witnesses, but they didn't believe them because there were obstacles. And I want us to look at these obstacles because these obstacles are the same sort of obstacles that we face when we hear witnesses to Jesus, and when we hear God's Word read or preached. The first obstacle was this, and these are ways that we can miss the message. These are ways that we, even today, can miss the message that's proclaimed. We can miss the message if we rejoice only in the messenger. 
Now, that's what happened with John, wasn't it? John was a spectacle. He was a, he was a celebrity pastor. He was a big time preacher in his day. And crowds went out to hear him. And they would talk about him in the streets. Oh, did you hear John's preaching? And they rejoiced in John. And they rejoiced in his eloquence or his, the rawness of his preaching or whatever, his, or his dress with his, with his, and his diet or whatever it might have been or his being in the desert. Now that's a preacher. They rejoiced in the preacher and they missed the message. Benjamin Franklin in his uh, diary has a, his autobiography has a fascinating section in which he talks about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a friend of John uh, Wesley, John Charles Wesley. He was an evangelist in the colonies, the American colonies, one of the greatest preachers uh, of, of maybe of all time. And uh, he was one of those who participated in the great awakening and great revivals in the, in the colonies. And Benjamin Franklin loved George Whitfield. He loved George Whitfield. He loved hearing George Whitfield. He loved promoting George Whitfield. Well, he loved promoting him because it was good financially for, for Benjamin Franklin and his newspapers and so on. But he, he rejoiced in George Whitfield. But there's no evidence that he ever believed what George Whitfield was preaching. We can miss the message if we rejoice only in the messenger. That's the first thing. The second is we can miss the message if we refuse to respond to it in faith. Uh, verses 39 and 40, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So we can give a lifetime, as some tragically have and do, give a lifetime to studying this book and miss it, miss its message, because we refuse to believe it. Because it is a message that is not only being presented so that we might know about it. It is, on the face of it, a message that in order to be received must be believed. There's another way we can miss the message, and that is by being merely religious. Merely religious, but missing the love of God. And Jesus has some harsh words for these very religious people. He says, Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. And this is, this is tragic. That these who, who constantly studied the Scriptures and were constantly trying to figure out how to serve God, Jesus says, you don't have the love of God in you. So we can, we can miss the message if we're just religious, but ignorant, an alien to the love of God. We can also miss the message if we are impressed with those who make a great deal of themselves. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So there are two things there. We can be impressed with stars that make a lot of themselves. And that's what they were doing. They were seeking glory from one another. I don't think that's stopped among humans, has it? Seeking fame, seeking glory, seeking recognition from one another. And he says, if you do that, you'll miss the message. 
Because you're looking for all this little mini-affirmation and mini-glory and mini-recognition, and you're missing out on the honor that comes from God. There are all sorts of ways to miss the message. And perhaps this time of year, uh, we show how expert we are as humans at missing the message. There are celebrations that go on around the world in all sorts of countries, and ostensibly these celebrations have to do with the incarnation of the Son of God as a man, ostensibly. Now, I'm not here to defend these celebrations, but it is fascinating and tragic to see how easily we can have the message right in front of us and miss the message. So I don't want you to miss the message today. What's the message? To be clear, the message is that the Son of God, who is God, became the Son of Man, became one of us, so that He might live, die, rise again, so that He will give life to all who believe in Him. And so that they in the judgment, will be judged according to their works that evidence their faith, but will not come into condemnation, because they've already passed from death to life. That's the message, my friends. Please, please, don't miss it. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that Jesus did not just come making these astounding claims that would be outrageous if they were by themselves. But we thank You that He has witnesses and that You are that greatest of witnesses by the works You gave Him to do, by the words You spoke about Him, by the the prophets You sent. You amply testify to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, Your Son and that He is, in fact, our Savior if we will but believe in Him. And so we recognize Jesus today, and I pray for all of us that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we may not miss the message, but accept it with faith and live it out with love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.